Hello and welcome to episode two of the Neurodiverse Life podcast, a three-part series that focuses on some of the fundamental aspects of our lives and the roles that neurodiversity plays in each. Neurodiversity is a term that acknowledges the different ways we all think and learn. In other words, it is an understanding of the natural diversity in our cognition and how we process information day to day. This episode is all around work where there is a growing conversation around embracing and attracting neurodiverse talent. And with me today is Theo Smith, VP of Customer Acquisition at Zinc Work, co-author of the new book, Neurodiversity at Work, and a self-professed neurodiversity evangelist. And Theo is with me now. Hello. Hello. How are we today? Very good, thanks. How are you? I'm amazing. Thank you very much. Good. It is great to have you here. And I want to start with, what does a neurodiversity evangelist do exactly? That is a very good question. And yeah, kind of, there's a challenge around calling yourself something like that, right? That you could be, people could kind of look at you cross-eyed thinking, what exactly is that? Well, um, the reason why I use evangelist as a word is because I just, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to evangelize around the um, incredible benefits of neurodiversity as a concept and then kind of neurodiversity within the work um, place because that is somewhere where I felt I had lots of experience and it is my kind of day-to-day job so therefore matching the two kind of really made sense to me so speaking about neurodiversity and um, sharing information across the internet via um, different forms of communication whether that's video whether that's um, podcasts whether that's short form content on stuff like LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter. Basically, it's talking a lot, but in different different ways and means, just to let other people know all the kind of stuff that's going on in my head and all of that information that I'm absorbing all the time so that it's not lost, so that others get to benefit from it as well. So that's the kind of the evangelist piece. And I definitely want to get into some of those specific projects that you work on. But firstly, I think it's kind of fair to say that a lot of the work you do around public speaking and advocating for neurodiversity is really heavily influenced by your own story. Could you tell me a bit about what your experiences and journey towards understanding neurodiversity has been like? Yeah, of course. So, um, it started with not knowing, I guess, in the earliest phase of my being um, as a young person. Um, I, I responded in what I can now look as probably unusual ways to certain situations, and I still do. Um, but at the time um, of being a kid who's like seven, eight, nine, ten, um, those responses were fight or flight is the best way I can describe them. In certain instances, I physically fought people because I um didn't understand them i couldn't understand why they were treating me or engaging with me in a certain way while i was being mocked i didn't understand nuances around kind of comedy um uh, and therefore um I, I got high levels of stress and anxiety in certain situations so that happened from very early on um, right through all of my school life um, which had an impact on my ability to learn so i failed at school and i went to college i spent three years in college in the final weeks of, of college, um, the head of the department failed me in front of everybody. Long story, but um, the, the short of it is it was the same narrative that was playing out in my life. Um, that I then had this kind of fight or flight mechanism 
um, the fight could be um, taking things I shouldn't, doing things I shouldn't, going to places I shouldn't, being with people I shouldn't, um, being influenced by things that I shouldn't uh, that had a, a severe impact on my mental health and well-being. So, uh, I, but I overcame it, right? This is the positive thing. I overcame it without knowing at that time. At 21, my parents had gone to university as mature students really late in life, both working class, both didn't have kind of, uh, you know, the qualifications, the ability to go to university, the money, whatever else. But later on in life did. So I did the same myself. I said, well, at 21, I've got no qualifications, no formal qualifications, but who's going to stop me? My parents did it. So at 21, who's going to stop me doing it? And that's what I did. Um, and it's at university that I found out that um, I was dyslexic. And uh, and then it's been another, oof, I don't know, that was 21, 22. It's taken me until 38 to understand what neurodiversity is, the fact that I'm impacted by it, by incredible people out there who talk about co-occurrence. Um, uh, so I wrote a book with Professor Amanda Kirby. She writes about co-occurrence in neurodiversity uh, concept movement so that I could be dyslexic, but I could also be ADHD. I could also be a number of other things because I'm a complex human being. And that was a big light bulb moment because I had other family members who were impacted by different areas of, of what we look at as kind of the area of being um, uh, neurodifferent and, and kind of falling into different categories. But actually, we all belong to the same category, which is we're all neurodiverse, like a thumbprint uh, 160 billion brain cells or whatever it's complex right so that that's the journey <laughs> that's yeah. we've got here no for sure and you've worked directly with organizations now like LinkedIn, Zalando, Wayfair, Capita and Capgemini just to name a few and you're offering your time to talk about neurodiversity at work and helping people on their own journey towards understanding the importance of this topic what are you hearing from these organizations? Uh, yes, really good question, because um, at first I kind of thought, uh, you know, this is great, right? There's a, there's a movement here. There's people who want to get behind it. But it's the organizations that can really make the difference, because um, I'm struggling to change the education system, and that's going to be a long journey. Um, but the uh, the environment, the work environment, right, we can change some of these mind uh, within seconds and they can then go back and they can implement those changes the next day that's powerful so what i've seen from organizations is the interest to understand what neurodiversity means in the context of the workplace but also how they can then support their employees beyond the workplace as well so organizations are really seeing the the benefits not because um Different brains, right, can help increase business performance, right? Loads of data analysis on that. But the reality is, like um, biodiversity, right, we need biodiversity for the world to work, right? The way I now see it is we need neurodiversity for exactly the same reason. You take out bees out of, out of the system, we've got a problem, right? You take out certain unique brains out of the system, we have a problem. And organizations are going, yeah, yeah, we can see that. And, and the global pandemic has helped organizations realize. And the other big impact is mental health and well-being. So what they're seeing is you saw a big movement for mental health and well-being a year or two ago as COVID hit. And even just before that, it was happening, right? A lot of organizations getting on board with mental health and well-being. But now they're kind of looking at the underlying causes of, of why people are, are kind of just falling off the edge of this cliff one day. 
right? And, and actually what you'll find is uh, not supporting individuals with their neurological differences, the challenges that they may face in work that seem invisible, right, has a detrimental negative impact to their mental health and well-being, which has a detrimental negative impact to business performance and productivity, and actually to innovation and creativity. And as we go through this uh, evolution of, of technology, of the way that we work, of our environments, we now absolutely need these brains. And these organizations are seeing it. And that's what they want. They want to be able to, they need somebody to ignite that flame, right? But the important thing then is we have a sustainability uh, of, of implementing um, work practices that help those people um, for many, many years to come. And this isn't just a single flame. This is one that carries uh, to, uh, to be a light for, for neurodiversity for many years to come. For sure, for sure. And your new book is called Neurodiversity at Work, Drive Innovation, Performance and Productivity with a Neurodiverse Workforce. As you mentioned earlier, it's written in collaboration with Dr. Amanda Kirby. And it feels like one, quite a natural progression of the conversations that you're having, and two, a very timely resource. And there's a lot of case studies, best practice examples, and research in the book. You talk about the kind of invisible needs um, that can kind of go unidentified. When you were writing the book, did do you have to do much digging to find all of these examples, case studies, these resources out there? Yeah, in sure. Um, and, and that's the reality. I, I couldn't find the information that I wanted three years ago. I couldn't. I found out about this concept of neurodiversity. I found out, wow, I'm probably ADHD. Then there was uh, impact on my family, my children, how they're impacted. So all of this whirlwind was happening to me. So I was as a dad, I wanted to find out more information. As, a, as an employee, I wanted more information. And as a manager, as a leader, as somebody within HR. And it, I couldn't. I could not get this information. It wasn't there. At the time, there was no book of neurodiversity in the workplace. It did not exist. So then I was, I was scrabbling around. I was speaking to people. I was interviewing people. Um, somebody incredible, Katrina Collier, who wrote a book called The Robot Proof Recruiter. I spoke to her and she said, Theo, this is how you need to go about it. You need to write a book. You need to create a podcast. And there you will find the information you need. And that's what I did. Uh, I created the podcast so that I had a reason to talk to people. I um, started to extract some of that information and knowledge to start the foundations of the book. And um, I ensured that I got somebody who was far more knowledgeable than me. Um, far more worldly in terms of this space than I uh, than I can ever be, uh, at least in, in this period of my life. Maybe later on, who knows what I can achieve. But Amanda, um, I needed somebody like Amanda um, to, to write the book with me. She's already proven that she can do this. She She's published nine books. So um, it was that collaboration. However, you know, I bring some stuff to the table, right? I bring real lived experience of in the moment, uh, neurodiversity become a new thing, was fresh, it was like an open wound or an open opportunity, both at the same time. Um, so, and, and Amanda's going through it, it with her grandchildren, everything, her own family uh, as well. So bringing those two things together created something quite interesting. And I'm also within the world of recruitment and HR, which is very specific. I was in-house, I worked for the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. I, I've seen some of the challenges around the medical paradigm from a recruitment perspective. 
So kind of bringing those two things together helped. And then pulling in, we pulled in over 40 different uh, individuals and organizations, could possibly much more than that, to uh, support us with the book. And when I say support, I don't just mean a line or two. I don't just mean reading of what. I mean, we actually pulled real insights that went across pages from all of those individuals and organizations. And some were uh, very immature stages, um, i.e. they were just starting out. They were getting things going. They were having the conversations and explaining how that worked for them. Others, global programs, you know, they'd, they'd been working for many years on building this and then trying to build it out across global organizations. So, uh, you know, it was a challenge to get all of that because it wasn't immediately out there. But that was the point of the book, to bring it to a single place so that people like me didn't have to go and scrabble around and find it. They could go, here's the book, or I could just go through the contents of the book and see the different influences and people and, and access the information that way. Yeah, I think having it readily accessible for organizations is the the really important point there. And there's a really excellent point in the book that talks about enabling the how to enable the conversation around neurodiversity and that our fear of getting it wrong and the consequences of that stop us from even trying. And especially when we consider the legal duty that employers have under the Equality Act 2010. What are some of the best ways that you've seen employers approach this fear in, in constructive ways? So I think Amanda put it, it's the government's best kept secret, this uh, access to work. Um, so, and that's the challenge we face. So for most organisations, um, the fact that most organisations are not big global powerhouses, most organisations are SMEs, they're small, they may have 50, 100, 150 people, right? So for them to access it is really a challenge. And then what you've got um, countering that in the bigger organisations is HR functions who rather than being empowered by uh, the idea that there's access to work, there's support, they've got a legal obligation. And I understand this and I'm not calling it, um, but it, it, they fear it, right? Because if there are legal implications, there are lawyers that need to be involved, you know, there are if you get it wrong, sometimes the implications for getting it wrong may feel like they're much bigger than for not doing anything at all. Well, we didn't try it. We didn't put ourselves out there. Therefore, we didn't have any risk around it. Right. And this is a challenge we've got. And we've got the in the school system. Um, if you try and get your child diagnosed with autism, uh, dyslexia, ADHD, ADHD is an example. With CAMS, there's a three to five year waiting list. Right. So on the one hand. We've got children can't be diagnosed, so they can't access the support in school. Yet we've got a government saying, and, and governments are transient, right? So all governments, I'm not every single government, transient, um, uh, are, not, are not doing anything about that. And then they're saying that organisations can't discriminate. But the problem is, <laughs> if, if, if in the very early stages of development, if in the schools, in the education system, we're not given the support to access um, via whatever route that would help those individuals because they have to get a tick box on a piece of paper that they can't access for many years. Then how can we then expect organisations at that level to really take this seriously? So that again, that comes back to the book to say, listen, there are, there are stuff, there's tangible things that you can do that are not highly risky, that uh, you can just put in place tomorrow, that you can do as individuals, not as organisations. Right? And that's not to say we want people running off trying to fix people or fix things, but we can have people look at the way 
they write job descriptions or job adverts or the way that we write internal documentation and think, is that accessible? Do people understand it? Um, do we ask people the question, how can we help you? How can I help you? Like, how, like it doesn't mean like I'm going to be able to do the things that you ask, but let's have the conversation. And often a lot of this just comes down to not having the conversation. And that's what we want to be able to enable um, HR leaders, managers, employees to be able to open up. Because one of the big things that came out throughout the book is those organizations that were doing really good stuff had opened up the dialogue or the employees had forced the conversation. And then the organization put in the structure to ensure that they protected and enable and that you're not just having one person who is the advocate for ADHD, which in itself can become a challenge because they don't understand the legal uh, uh, risks and challenges or opportunities. Yeah, yeah. And that fear can go both ways, obviously, and employees can be equally worried or unsure about how to have the conversation around neurodiversity within their organisation. And there's a great example in the book from NICE that you mentioned, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellent, where, Excellence, where this conversation was able to naturally grow from kind of a single lunch and learn session, which is great. But what would you say to employees who don't have a particularly neurodiverse aware employer? Well, and this is the challenge, isn't it? Um, I think where it's not just having a, a neurodiverse, aware or friendly or however you want to describe it, employer, one that sees it as an important topic. Um, it's also around how comfortable you are around sharing um, your what may feel like your differences, right? So there's cultural nuances that play into that. It's not just how your employer perceives you, but it's around how your community perceives you. Um, and, and therefore dyslexia, for example, may be seen as some kind of horrible disability, not just within in your mind, because that's the way that you've been taught, perhaps through the, your education system, but perhaps in your wider community of where you live and where you spend your time. So then it becomes really difficult for an individual to put their hand up um, within that environment. So there's, there's lots of challenges for individuals um, beyond just whether or not their organisation is friendly to have this conversation. And organisations need to be aware of that as well, right? You can't just go, hey, who's 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 neuro different? Put your hands up, you know. And there are, there are examples of where employers, maybe they think they're right, doing the right thing. I, I really don't know. But where somebody is asked for, um, you know, noise cancelling headphones or something that can eliminate the noise, and they've been given big, massive um, airline, you know, or industrial orange things to put on their head and that's like a big flag above my head say hey I'm different and and the workplace is ensuring that you all know it so so th this is there's a fear there's anxiety from individuals and rightly so around them um coming forwards and saying this is who I am right? I'm bringing my whole self to work here uh and then you actually look at me differently and you don't treat me properly and you start to manage me in a way to say Oh, so the reason why you keep uh, misspelling your emails is because you're dyslexic. Well, that's really bad because really we need somebody who can spell properly in the emails to our customers. It looks bad on us. Oh, like you lose your concentration in meetings. Mm. So it's because of your ADHD. Oh, now we can pin that and say that. So really you've got a, you've got a mental problem that's going to inhibit you doing what's needed to be done. So you're never going to overcome that. No, 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 no. Right? Support mechanisms. Um, and, and this this for 
individuals is why they do need to be cautious around um, putting their hand up and they need to ensure that they support. So yes, I would, I would, I would urge individuals who either believe that they may, uh, their brain may work in a way that is being inhibited by their work practices or by the leadership style, management style, uh, and, and go and seek outside support. Um, and, and that would be from professionals, I mean, psychologists or, you know, but, but people who specialise within this area, dependent on where you are in your stress levels, right? You may be at the point of where you're, you're a complete mental breakdown, or you may just need a bit of help understanding which technologies may help you within the workplace. Great examples like Autotrader and the work that they do just to open up conversations, um, which, which are incredible, but not every organization is like that. So yeah, I would urge individuals to, to just take it slow, right? Uh, and start to go on this journey of self-exploration understanding and, and find what it is that's going to help you on that journey, because it is not the single point, which is the employer. Yeah. And there's absolutely like no obligation to share um, any of this information, but sometimes external kind of communities and forums can provide a little bit of um, support and kind of other perspectives if it's, you know, not something that you want or are ready to share in the work environment. And that's absolutely fine. Um, and I think it's, it is important to emphasize the need for flexibility and understanding on an individual basis. And it can be very different for different individuals. So if you're up for it, um, using you as an example here, how would you say you support your own neurodiversity in your working life? And how does it really help you at work? Wow. And, and this is the journey, right? So I can't even say I've still figured that out. Um, and so I've had changes in work practices and everybody might be able to uh, understand what I'm talking about here because of COVID, right? I've had changes in leadership, changes in process. I Like when you're in your job, you may have a particular way of working and the job may change, right? Not by you, maybe by a customer, maybe by other movements in internal structure, maybe in leadership. There's a variety of things that could do. Or COVID, all of them could happen at once. So yay, I'm at home and that might help. But then all these other things have changed where actually I may need some time with the people because they're new employees that now work for me or whatever else it may be. So I find this can be a period a moment in your life where you go from completely comfortable and happy and supported to as if somebody has just pushed you off the edge of a cliff without a parachute. And, and, and that can be, you know, that can impact your um, well-being, mental health in, in ways like you can't imagine. Um, and so what I would say is you, you've got that that a lot of people may have gone through and you may need to seek real help and support to help you manoeuvre through that. Um, uh, or it may be that, you know, the, the job is no longer right for you. But how, how do you how are you able to understand that? And I think it's around looking at the, the pain points, the things that have impacted you and then find out, right, what is going to uh, alleviate some of those pain points to help you in the short term, at least, so that you can start to get your head above water so that you're not at the point of drowning where all you're trying to do is just keep your mouth just out of water, which is the problem. Right. And that's where you then break. You need to go right here's the pieces of work, right? Can I get my manager to support me with taking some of that responsibility away? Can we get short-term support? And this doesn't then have to be about I'm ADHD, help me. 
This could be about I'm struggling with these elements of work. Can we outsource them? Can we bring somebody in to help? Is there somebody else within the organization? Um, I had somebody incredible who helped me in a, in a past role um, during COVID who worked front of house um, within the organization, right? And um, we had a real problem with uh, onboarding and doing a particular checks like references that we had to do uh, as part of a government organization. And they came from front of house to manage that part of the process and they knocked out of the park. They were brilliant at it. And it's just an example, right, of sometimes the help is not in the most obvious place, right? But it, it is there and, and you need to try and seek it out so that you can plug some of these uh, gaps that you have. Sometimes it's technology that can help you. Sometimes it's individuals. Sometimes it may not be your manager and that's fine. And you may fear mention it to them. Look for a peer who can support you. Look for um, someone outside of that. It doesn't have to be a conflict, but it's just finding mechanisms to be able to uh, ensure that you've got those support mechanisms. Basically, so you can get through that period of time. Uh, of heightened stress and anxiety, which I think for a lot of people who are neurodifferent um, is where they uh, lose their jobs potentially because they go from good performance to crash and burn. And for organisations, they're like, what? What's happened? Like, And they'll come back if they've got the support. But sometimes the managers don't understand how to give that support and the HR departments may not um, be facilitating support. Now. So, uh, yeah, where possible, try and understand where those pain points are and then get the additional support that you can from professionals or peers or whatever it may be, just to get you through uh, those moments of challenge and change. Mm. And I think it it shows that organisations and um, can't be complacent around this. So even for organisations that are really inclusive, that have um, that use access to work, that are really kind of on it with supporting, providing specific support mechanisms. As you say, a, any change, something sudden can, even when they've got these support processes in, process, in, in place, can cause more difficulties. And so it seems like always reviewing and having keep having the conversation. Don't think, OK, they've got this support in place. Now they can just kind of get on and do their job. It's like a constant conversation and more of a, a much more holistic approach, I guess. Here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. What organisations do, and sometimes the worst for it are organisations that do have a, a better idea of what needs to be done. So I, it may be a, a very large organisation and has loads of great structures in place for DNI, whatever it may be, or a, or a government organisation or a regulated industry, whatever it may be. They, uh, they think they've put the things in place. They've got the tick boxes, right? They'll respond if you tick the box to say, I'm disabled, right? They think, okay, somebody's in a wheelchair. We we need to show them where the lift is or whatever. It, these things that they think they're doing well. But really often all they're doing is they're getting somebody in a wheelchair through the door, right? And going, did it. Well done. You got them through the door. But the reality is, right, it's not about getting somebody through the door. It's about enabling somebody to be their best selves, right? And we don't do it through the recruitment process. Um, we... Don't do it on the onboarding. We don't do it when they get into the role. We just give them enough ability to keep their mouths above the water. And we go, now they can do their job. No, now they can do their job some of the time if they work really, really, really hard, right? But that's not sustainable. That person's going to break. And, and, and we're, not, we're not asking the questions. We're just going, we've ticked a couple of boxes, right? So we've done enough. 
We've very, very rarely done enough. And the point at which we know we've not done enough is six months in when that person breaks down. Psychologically, emotionally, physically, that person breaks down. And we go, oh, bad performance. They, they, they're not performing as they should do. They're not completing their projects. They're not doing their work. They're not managing their team properly. They should be a good team manager and they're not doing it. No, that person's broken down. And, and the mechanisms weren't put in place to ensure that they were able to perform at their optimum. Now, organizations that do it well, right, you can see it. You can see these people thriving, right, because the mechanisms have been put in place. So that, that for me, is a really important part of where we all need to look at ourselves, right, and go, are we just getting these people through the door and then patting ourselves on the back because they don't get through the door in other places? Or are we actually providing them with the support, the mechanisms for these individuals? You know, it's these types of mechanisms we need to put in place. High contrast in the book, you know, um, one of the leading electronic music producers in the world, right? Synesthesia, you know, could be a, a debilitating um, thing that happens to him that stops him being able to perform in life. Instead, it's, it enables him to in, uh, create incredible in music. This is the difference, right? This is by elevating somebody up, by giving them the platform, they're going to they're gonna do incredible things. But the minute we take that platform away from them, poof, it's over. Yeah, yeah. And for people out there looking to support either employees or themselves, kind of specifically at work, more in the like, as you say, the day to day, not just kind of recruitment and onboarding, which you kind of cover the whole process in the book. Are there any big do's and don'ts for supporting neurodiversity in the workplace? Well, I'll just I'll just say it. I mean, you know, we've got several elements to this or many elements to this. Um, and I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a doctor. Uh, I'm not an academic researcher. What I am is somebody who understands um, the work environment really well. Uh, and then I've seen how people have been discriminated against firsthand. And I've worked with recruitment many years. So I've a, a lot of candidates has passed through my hands into organisations. And I'd say that... Um, we need to start having more open, honest uh, conversations with our people. Uh, and uh, like it seems so simple, right? But we do. We need to start asking people like, how we're going to support them. And it, and it can't be in a momentary thing of a one-to-one -one where we go, um, are you happy? Are you okay? Is everything fine? Anything we can do for you? Because in that moment of a one-to-one, like that person's like, oh, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I'm fine. I think I'm fine. Yeah, I'm kind of fine. Yeah. Can you spot? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I'm not sure. Like, I'm not. Not that person, right? At the point of where you can see they're struggling or where something's gone wrong, like, um, you know, uh, a client's lost, an email was sent that goes down the wrong way, whatever it is, a, a bit of communication where there's two loggerheads in the office environment. We're like, how did that happen? Why are these two people arguing? You know, it's at that point. You're able to uh, support that individual by asking the, the open, honest question where you're saying, I, I really want to support you and understand, you know, what has happened there and how we can um, better facilitate and support you performing in your role. And sometimes then, right, from that conversation, you are bringing in the right professionals to support you at that point. And it may be around communications, right? It may be around recruitment. It may be around onboarding. It may be around hiring manager capability. It may be around individual capability, right? There's a lot of facets. And often what we do is we jumble all these up and go, 
we'll get some, we'll get Theo to talk about all these concepts, and that'll fix it. No, it won't. I'm not the fixer of all things, right? I, I barely scratched an education together, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to fix this stuff for you, right? But there are many, many people who have incredible expertise in all these different facets, people, organizations, technologies that are fixing these problems. As organizations, we need to look at the individual or look at the group, however it forms within our organization and go, right, what can we now do to support that? And it's not getting an influencer. It's it's getting somebody with the expertise to solve that problem in that moment. And organizations need to get savvy and they need to wake up. Yes, there is access uh, to work support. There's government funding that not enough organizations take on. But even then, like take that first, because if you do it early enough in the period of employing somebody, right, you're, you're going to get the whole pot and not just a part of it. And your last chance of uh, of ending up in court for not doing the right thing, right? Because you tried at the very early stages. Um, but even then, a lot of commercial organizations are spending their own money, right? Because they see how important this is. Individual performance, right? If you've got 20% of the population, um, uh, kind of their wet brains are, are wired uh, more differently, you know, uh, and they face greater barriers to the workplace, right? A lot of them are already in your organization. If you can enable that 20% to increase their performance, you overnight are increasing the performance of 20% of your organization. Now let's go out and hire people. You're enabling these people who are sat in your organization who may be struggling, right? Go enable them. Go do the right thing. Go spend a little bit of money. Go bring the experts in to be able to take them from here to here because you'll have a better workforce, happier workforce, stay with you longer. And I'll start to outperform others in a positive way. Create, you know, this nice energy and competition within the organization. So there are things you need to do. Do it now. <laughs> yeah. And it is definitely, as you say, an ongoing conversation. Um, I think it's it's pretty fascinating. The stuff recently, obviously, around lots of people working from home, greater flexibility on that, and the conversation around the four-day working week kind of becoming more and more in the forefront of the working world. What impact do you kind of see that having on neurodiverse individuals in particular, but I guess everyone. Yeah, well, I think we've seen it, haven't we? The, um, so if we look at, you know, yeah, neurodiversity as concept is everyone, right? And we all have our own uh, challenges around work environments, working practices. Uh, it's just obviously environments have, have been built many, many moons ago and the structure of them and we've been influenced by other countries and what have you around big open plan offices and they've just not benefited everybody for different reasons. The the fact people have moved uh, into their own home environment has been positive for some. Now, I'm sat in a room, right? Now, kids, summer holidays, all things that can impact on my ability to do my job and distract me, right? Which is not that different from people in work distracting me, right? Or me distracting others. And um, but some other people, they won't be sat in their own room. They'll be sat in a room that they share with four other people. They may be sat in a room that they share with their abusive partner. They may be sat in a room um, that is uh, on short-term lease and they don't know if they're going to be there in the next few weeks. They may be sat in a room where they've got no food and no drink. You know, like these, these may seem like simple things for some, but going into an office environment and having free tea and coffee, if that's part of the environment, and, and a warm place and somewhere to, like that could be much more beneficial than working remotely. So we, we've got to understand that. It's not just, 
oh, you're you're autistic, therefore you're going to love to work from home on your own. No, a co-occurrence. Maybe autistic, ADHD. You may have had this life, that life. You may um, be a very outgoing person who wants to be in the environment, right? So we can't define people in those little boxes. So the, what it's done, though, is, is provide us an opportunity for choice, right? Because organizations go, ah, okay, so we can have an office. We can create all these different types of environments within the office, and we can invite people to come in, um, you know, uh, like uh, in a university environment. Perhaps they say, you come in, you know, a couple of days a week to students. Um, you come in a couple of days a week to uh, lecturers, and you do some online. and. You know, the other support functions come, come in once every two weeks. People are going into the office, but it's it's in a completely different uh, structured way, right? And that's a kind of a, like a community, if you imagine, a university, of all these different types of people and influences working in different types of ways. So I think that's the, the beauty of what can be achieved um, in these types of institutes and organizations. And even the smaller businesses can now go, well, we can rent workspaces and we can just rent them for a day and we can rent them for 30 quid and just pop up. Our organization has just said to us, you know, um, if you want to go and rent a space, um, you know, a couple of times a week, we'll pay for it. You just go and rent the space. And if you want to come down to London and be with us in this other rental space, great. So I've now got the opportunity to go, actually, I might want to go with people, might want to get out of the house, might want to. So I'll just go and be creative in maybe a shared space where I know there's other creatives, right? Maybe I'll go and infiltrate a really different type of space where I know it's a banking sector, you know, the fintech companies. Or, so then you can start to innovate through ideas, through concepts with people you otherwise would never spend time with. Ooh, that's interesting, isn't it? So I think organizations are going to really get onto this idea of, um, you know, allowing individuals that, that choice can, can not just um, increase their mental health and well-being, but it can stimulate creativity and growth. Uh, an opportunity for for information that can be brought back into that organization that can significantly can increase um, overall performance. So that's what I'm really excited about now as we kind of come out of this crazy period of time. But there has been studies that have uh, that have been shown now reports that have said uh, more um, people um, with a disability have um, gone into work who weren't previously in work. Right. But that has been there's an Additional studies from um, the National Autistic Society that have shown that more um, people who are autistic are out of work. So it's not as, you know, it might be that somebody you couldn't access a city centre because our rail stations are still awful for wheelchair access. They've now been able to get a job where they couldn't before. But somebody uh, who's autistic, who's in part time employment, who lost their job in COVID, now is struggling to get a part time job because it took them ages to get that job in the first place. So these are the kind of things that we're going to have to manoeuvre and consider as we now move through the next six to 12 months. Yeah. And it's it's a kind of a help. It's these helpful changes that it is kind of, you know, it can't be one thing or the other talking about the four day week or whatever it is. Then it's never going to be this is going to work for everyone. It's obviously always an individual um, individual thing and an ongoing conversation. I think the book for me, really feels a big part of that. And it was two years in the making, if I'm getting that right. It's out now and has already become an Amazon bestseller. So it's really good to see all that hard work paying off. What has the feedback been like so far? 
Feedback's been absolutely incredible. I mean, um, and, and, you know, there's some fear and anxiety around, because, um, you know, I've mentioned it, but I didn't expect ever to write a book, right? So when you write a book, um, I was lucky enough to write it with Amanda. But even then, there's me in there, right? So uh, there's that anxiety that somebody's going to go, oh, some of, the, some of these chapters, some of this information is amazing, it's really good. Some of this other stuff, goodness, where did that come from? I'm like, yeah, me. Um, so there's, there is that fear around um, why I've, I, you know, I've never written anything more than a thousand words. Um, and that has been just ideas flowing out of my head. So to structure that, um, there, there was a lot of concern that it may not land well. But, you know, we, we started to test it with people. Um, and, and obviously we'd had, as I mentioned, a lot of people uh, input into the book. But some of these people, um, uh, you know, they, they're people I really respect. And, and the fact that they've read the book because we sent them early copies um, and come back, Josh Burson. I mean, Josh Burson, um, you know, I, I've been chasing him down for years. Um, and whenever I'm in an event, I'm like, Josh, Josh, come and meet me. Come and talk to me. And he's a really polite, always coming back to me. But when I when I chased him down uh, about this, he was like, yeah, 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 send it to me. I'll read it. And he came back and he. And he said, uh, you know, this book clearly explains the necessity to pay close attention to every employee's individual needs and leverage everyone's extra special capabilities in unique and powerful ways. And that, that that's important, right? Because the, his level of influence is huge. And it, within the HR community, that's where I believe we need to kind of shift the thinking. So for me, getting that back. Uh, as well as getting it back from people I know really well, like Alan Walker, basically influencers within our industry um, that have their finger to the pulse of what's going on and what the future is going to look like. Bill Borman as well. I mean, it just, it, these are my peers. These are the people I respect and look up to. And um, yeah, so I, as you can see, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty happy with the feedback so far. But the real test now is coming, right? It's 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 actually out now. It's land. I'm getting pictures on LinkedIn of it landing on people's desks and they're sharing it. These people now, people who I don't really know, who follow my content, who engage with me, these are the people I really want to hear back from because this is not the end. This is the beginning, right? And this was only written to facilitate and support conversations. So I don't even, I don't mind if people call me out and call somebody out as long as they're providing insight, right? as long as they're igniting further conversations so we get to where we want to because you'll know from from reading the book it's um we, we say often we don't know the answers here always you know we don't we, we're formulating our ideas based on what we can see and hear and the research that we've done but this is evolving and it's evolving rapidly so again they, they should be igniting those conversations uh, and, and that's what i'm excited to see yeah. And you took the words right out of my mouth earlier when you talked about the parallels with the kind of mental health movement. And obviously, the conversation around neurodiversity does seem to be going through this similar evolution, really centered around an inclusive and compassionate viewpoint, which is is really exciting. And for someone like yourself at kind of the forefront of that conversation and seeing it kind of every day, what does the future of neurodiversity at work look like to you? Wow. Um, so it's it for me. It is this idea that um, that I mentioned earlier around you know we we cannot the world in the way that we're living is not sustainable. Um, you know we're in danger of destroying the planet. Um, we're in danger of destroying one another. We've got um, 
we've been able to polarize opinion. Uh, social media has not helped in such a way that um, it, 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 it upsets me, and I'm an eternal optimist. So to upset me is not an easy thing. Um, and so when I see neurodiversity moving, and I know I focus on neurodiversity at work because that's the that's my ability to change today, right? I can change people today. They can go into the workplace and change. But actually, as a, as a wider concept and idea, neurodiversity for me is the opportunity for um, humanity to make the, the required changes um, to ensure that we can continue on this planet, continue in this world, that we have organizations that are care, compassionate, and look after their people. And we're, we're, getting, we're getting there each day. We're, we're adding layers to this, um, and it's by very different movements to ensure um, inclusion and, and equity and belonging within society, right? I'm not, organizations can, can play a big part of this, but society, we have an issue, a real issue in society globally. Um, so I see neurodiversity as fundamentally an opportunity to, to reframe the way that we look at that so that the uniqueness of our brains is as important as the uniqueness as biodiversity is to the sustainability of this planet. So that we need to think about it now, um, and that is going to ensure that we're able to uh, find creative ways, uh, innovative ways um, to, to continue this world on. And just a final point on that, you look at the types of people that are breaking boundaries, whether they're athletes, whether they're people going to outer space, whether they're people creating music, whether they're people who created artificial intelligence and machine learning through uh, algorithms, through incredible mathematic brains, like the list is unbelievable. And it's not just the past, it is today. People going into rockets into space, they are minds that are wired differently, right? And, and they're now starting to talk about that. You know, so this is what we need to consider. If these are the people who are breaking the boundaries, we need to start to find ways to enable them, right, to take away some of this kryptonite, to enable them to become these incredible superhuman uh, superhumans who are going to transform this world for us. Uh, and it starts now. I can have said it better. And thank you so much for joining me, Theo. It's been incredible to talk to you. Just before we go, are you ready for a few quick fire questions? Yeah, uh, go sure am. Let's do it. Okay. Um, how do you think people see generally see neurodiversity? Well, I think there's a number of elements to this, and it's not just, it's from what I hear as well, right? Because I talk to lots of people about this, but a lot of people see neurodiversity as autism. Ouch. It's not autism. Um, neurodiversity is obviously um, the, the differences in the human brain, right? And that's what's important, and that's what people need to now understand. We can then break down all the facets and aspects of that, but um, neurodiversity is widely misunderstood. And I'm not talking, we can get wrapped up in the words, but it's actually around the, the differences in all humans and how we can get the best out of individuals in my mind. How would you like to see the conversation around neurodiversity change? I would like it to change from um, the idea of negative concepts to positive concepts. Very simply, lots of the stuff that I read early on had always had kind of a negative uh, viewpoint. So somebody 
who's autistic is going to have that problem, this problem, this problem, that problem. Somebody with ADHD is going to call problem in a class, probably end up in prison, blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying these things are not important, but I am fed up of just hearing them. We need to move to the point of where we're looking at the super abilities, right? How we can enable them. Because um, for me, I've heard enough of what I can't do. I want to look at what I can do. Um, and I don't want to look at my invisible uh, disability. I want to look at my invisible abilities. What piece of advice would you give to those of us who are neurodiverse? I, in that, I mean that they might struggle with particular things and have these kind of very um, specific and amazing abilities, but struggle in other ways and balancing that. Absolutely. So I would say um, one of the things that has impacted me most is when I realised um, that I have incredible abilities and that often I allowed them to get clouded by the things that I struggled with. And one of the biggest shifts in my mindset in the last few years is to go all in on my abilities, all in. I'm like any opportunity I get to focus on my abilities, my unique abilities I go all in and the feedback has been incredible the feedback's been like whoa and and I and and that's what I hear from others right but it's so easy when you're in the environment of where people are telling you oh you're not very good at that oh you're late to the meeting again oh you're this you're that you're that it builds this cloud builds above your head so anything you can do it may not you may struggle within your work environment you may be locked in how can you find that outside of your work environment Drama acting was always something for me. I didn't realize it then, but that was where I got told I was great. I was good. You did things well. So I found a way to get myself back into that space. Um, and we can all do it. Um, and entrepreneurs talk about it all the time. Focus on, you know, what you're passionate about, what you care about, what you feel good at. And um, we need to do that in our micro ways uh, within our life. And that is going to help increase our mental health and well-being. When it comes to embracing neurodiversity, what's the one area you would like to see people do better at? I'd just like people to um, try and uh, embrace it as an idea and a concept and keep open-minded. I think uh, people get drawn into the um, the dangerous uh, uh, line of thinking of, oh, negative, 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 therefore this is now somebody I don't want to manage or now somebody I don't want to employ. And that's what you see. The feedback from surveys that are being done still show that um, individuals, managers, HR departments, whatever, would still not hire somebody if they found out they were ADHD or autistic, right? That's what we got to overcome. we got to, and again, this is around flipping the narrative from um, the negative to the positive, because if we only ever focus on the negative, yes, the individual needs support, But what we're not doing is showing the people who may employ them or manage them all the wonderful things that they can do. So then all you're seeing is is the negative stuff. So individuals got to take responsibility for this. I managers, HR leaders, they've got to start to understand a bit more around neurodiversity as a movement, as a concept and the benefits um, to the organization, to their team, to their environment and to the world. What is your favourite thing about your mind and how you think? <laughs> my favourite thing about my mind is it is completely off the wall. 
Um, and the, the way that that works is I can say things completely inappropriate uh, to the situation. Well, that's the word. I can use an inappropriate word. Not inappropriate is in, I've swore, just it doesn't make sense. However, there's something really fascinating and interesting by somebody whose brain um, doesn't really properly, has never properly understood the English language, <laughs> um, even though I should. And um, it's you, you keep trying, you keep using things, you keep saying things, you almost don't have an ability to stop yourself doing it. So sometimes it doesn't work and you might get called out and my wife might say, what, what was that word you just used? You know what that means, don't you? I'll be like, yeah, no, no, just tell me, just, just remind me. Um, but other times it fits in a really odd way. And actually it gets people going, whoa, that's an interesting uh, way of framing something. And I'm not saying I always accidentally do it. Sometimes I do it and it's meaningful. What I always do is I, is I mean what I say. So I may use the wrong word or uh, I, I may describe it in a way that somebody else doesn't understand. But I, I know what's going on in my head. So I think that ability to see things in a, in a million different ways and to, for my brain always to be going, that is, uh, that's something that keeps me kind of driving forwards. But I can only remember is, two things at once. That's the only other problem, if that. Who is your neurodiverse hero? Hmm. So, I mean, Amanda's got to be up there with them. Um, because, I, you know, part of the driver for me is, is around family as well. And to see um, such an inspirational woman... Uh, and there's a lot of other stuff going on, uh, it, it kind of past life, family and everything else. To, to, to see somebody, an incredible woman who's, who's done so much and, and for similar reasons, she started out very different in some respects. She's GP, professor, pff, the list is endless and incredible. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I, want, I want my daughter to be able to see somebody like that and, and be inspired. Um, and I think that's really important for me. And then other people, you know, people who I who I grew up who I probably didn't understand, even though we're both neurodifferent, is Light Lincoln, high contrast, um, creating incredible music. Now I look back, you look back on those early years in in life and go, like even I was discriminatory, even I may have questioned why somebody acted in a particular way. You know, that they weren't maybe outgoing enough or, you know, they did their brain didn't work in the same way as mine. But as you go on through life, you start to realise, you start to realise what was important, the incredible people who, who were a part of your life. Um, so, yeah, uh, there's many, many more. And there's a huge swathe of people um, that you can find on LinkedIn who are just doing incredible things and putting, maybe they shouldn't, right, but they're putting themselves at risk um, by opening up so that others don't have to. Right. They, they're making themselves vulnerable so that others don't have to. And I think we need to get beyond the point where we do that. But it is empowering others to to maybe feel better about themselves, about themselves as a parent, about the, the difficult situation they may be in. So I could name a lot. All the people who contribute to the book, um, uh, especially as well. And we need even more. Yes. And um, what does neurodiversity mean to you? It means a complete transformation in the way that I see myself. Um, it empowers me to uh, focus on the positive elements of who I am. Uh, it empowers me to uh, look at my children in a completely different way. It empowers me to challenge um, the school in a positive way because it's a fantastic school, but it needs to be 
challenged, um, you know, because uh, even they don't understand um, within that uh, education system. It empowers me to do so many things. Three years ago, I just did not have the power to do because it's it's a concept, right? It's a movement. It's an idea. But it's what it's what that idea, that concept enables you to do as an individual. And maybe everybody else doesn't see it the same way as I do. Maybe sometimes I have debates and discussions around what it really means. And, but the reality is this is me, right? And it has transformed my life. It's transformed the, the way that I see the world. And, and for me, that like nobody can have argument with that. That, that, is, that is my thing. Right. And then what I'll do is I'll try and share that with the world and I'll try and empower other people to experience this incredible magic thing that happened as part of seeing myself not as a disability, not as um, somebody with a deficit or a disorder or a problem, um, but somebody with incredible capability given the platform. And we'll end it there. Thank you to Theo Smith, neurodiversity author, consultant and podcaster. Please join me for episode three, our final episode all around our journey to success. And thanks for listening.